about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. And I'll be doing the reading that is on the slides uh, from 1 John 1, starting at verse 5, going through to chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, good evening. My name is Mike, uh, one of the pastors here. Hello to those online and in the building. Whether you're new or regular, it's great to be with you uh, this, this evening. As we continue our series on living out the truth of Christmas, because John is, he not only wrote the Gospels, wrote this first epistle, this letter, and he wants us to know how the truth of Christ, that we celebrate at Christmas and all year, deeply impacts all of our life and the way we go about life. Um, and as, as we begin, I want us to think a little bit about um, our deepest need. And, and one of our deepest needs is, is simply belonging. That is to be known and be loved. And I think COVID's really highlighted that. I think I've shared this story before that uh, last year, my wife and I had this great idea of inviting our um, entire street um, comprised of 150 little terraces. It's only like 100 meters, right? But it's just like... Boop, boop, boop. So we, we let a box the whole place and we said, come around to our house. Um, we'd love to kind of meet you, hang out with you, and we'll put on some food. And we're thinking, this is going to be pumping. It's going to be great. Uh, one person came. And after we got over the shame of that event, uh, we, um, I found myself uh, just chatting with neighbors uh, during the middle of COVID. And with all that was happening... Uh, they said, Mike, we really appreciated the invite last year. I was like, you remember that? He's like, yeah, I remember it too, I was there for a different reason. Uh, and they said, we wish we came 
and we should do it again sometime. Why did they say that? Because COVID, with all its ups and downs, has highlighted that, that our sense of belonging is so important. Our sense of kind of being near others, which was really kind of, you know, just we were struggling with in the whole distancing thing, uh, is so prominent in our mind. And the reason why I raise this is because uh, this passage that we're going to be looking at tonight uh, has at its very core fellowship, fellowship with God and fellowship with others. And I want to highlight just at the beginning of this passage how John sets that up, and in a very John kind of way, uh, John sets it up with a very abstract idea of this, that God is light. Uh, We're going to get in the text tonight because it's such a beautiful text, I just want us to be immersed in it. And so I'm just going to, I've got a one-slide sermon, and I'm just going to walk us through it, that we might, we might be impacted by God's Word tonight. Uh, John starts with this, this, this simple and yet incredibly profound statement that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Like, okay, that sounds good, I could get on board with that. That's uh, Diwali today, right? We love the candles, the light, you know, we could, we could get on board with a God who is light, except when he follows it up to say that there is no darkness in Him at all, that starts to set up a bit of a predicament because all of us are aware that we're kind of, we're dimly lit candles. We've got some shadow stuff going on inside. And what does it mean to approach a God who is light? I mean, John uses kind of this light idea at the very beginning of his gospel when he talks about Jesus and says, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. But he'll go on to say that the world did not recognize him. Why? because of our darkened hearts. Jesus will go on to say that I am the light of the world. Just to kind of round this home a little bit further, I was listening to a guy this week who was talking about uh, being asleep one night in his, uh, in his house, and he's th- in the middle of the night, he hears this, thump, 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 and he's like, what the heck is that? Aliens, he thinks straight away. And he goes outside into the backyard, into the darkness, except it's not dark, there's this beam of light shining, and he's like, definitely aliens. Uh, but it's not, of course, it's a police helicopter. And what's above him is, is, is one of those helicopters with those whopping great big spotlights that you cannot hide under. It's such an oppressive and confronting light for him that he just freezes. That, he doesn't want to run into the darkness and give off the wrong perception. But it was such a profound light, it just kind of burned into his mind. Imagine if the light of the world, the God who is light, shone upon you. I would like to think that some of the parts of my life, the beautiful parts, might be lit up. But there are plenty of parts of my life that are cracked in the darkness and I've hidden things in the darkness that I wouldn't want necessarily exposed. Not even to myself, let alone others, or God. And so what does it mean to have fellowship with this God who is perfect, holy, majestic, light, Well, that's kind of where John wants us to go. He wants us to explore what it is to have fellowship with him. And he particularly wants us to explore maybe even the problematic parts of that in the way that we make claims about ourselves that diminish our fellowship with God and even delude ourselves. I've broken the passage down into different paragraphs here, and if I can steady my hand enough, I want to highlight that we've got three if-we-claim statements that set up what we think of ourselves before this God who is light. And the problem is, is that each of these claims have um, a consequence 
that if we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. And if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we claim we have not sinned, we have made God out to be a liar and His Word is not in us. And so, the, the rabbit hole is going to open up for us in this passage uh, around our darkened hearts and, and how we've deceived ourselves, but the gospel always has a but. It's very upfront about the human condition and where we stand before God, but it also shows us a counterclaim, the gospel counterclaim. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Uh, and then, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us. And then, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And so we have our claims of ourselves, we have the implications of those claims, and we have the gospel, but. Now I recognize that as we look at this passage and the logic of it, there's a couple of words that kind of, or ideas that stand out that maybe are a little bit uh, problematic for us, for our postmodern ears and hearts. Truth and sin both come with a whole bunch of baggage. What is truth? Let's just bite off that little chestnut. What is truth? Simply, it's that which accords with reality. But of course, you keep going with the question, what's reality? Blah, blah, blah. There was a time, for instance, that you would sort of have an appreciation of what is true by some kind of logical outline of the world. And because of that, you'd then believe it and then you would live it out. But those days are long gone for most of us. Instead, we live in a very postmodern world, if not post-postmodern world, where we actually uh, experience the world first and foremost. And if that's livable, we'll believe something about the way we do things. And if it's believable, then it's true. And what I find interesting is that the second way of living that starts with experience is kind of, it really uh, emphasizes authenticity, and that authenticity is, is built from the ground up on your heart. Now, the problem with that, of course, is your heart is so little, like physically, but also metaphorically. It's so fallible that our whole kind of sense of authenticity is built upon our, our beating and bleeding heart. And, and with that kind of, that, that frame that we build our life there, comes all these claims about ourselves, as we kind of build ourselves up from the ground up, from our heart, to be our best self kind of thing. And, and I notice that when these claims are, are kind of interrogated, or even kind of challenged, we become very agitated, because those are claims about ourselves, our, our reality. And what this passage is saying is that actually these claims that we make about ourselves are going to be challenged, but not by some philosophical truth, not some kind of, uh, sort of classical objectivity that we're just offended at by, you know, just because it's objective, but we're confronted by the truth that is a person. As the first reading was read, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're talking about encountering Jesus. And Matt labored last week about how Jesus is that window into the grander reality, the most, the most real reality, and that's, that's grounded in history. We're not talking about sort of some version of kind of like a prophet speaking about what God is like. We're talking about God Himself opening up a window into all of reality, appearing in history, and now speaking to us through His Word tonight. We're talking about encountering a person. 
And so whether you're kind of old school, pre-modern, modern, post-modern, post-post-modern, it's, it's kind of, it's the same thing. We are encountering a person. Everything is grounded on encountering Jesus and responding to him. Now, what I find interesting here is that these claims will bump up against Jesus and what he has to say about himself and ourself. And so the first one is, if we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not live out the truth. John here is gunning down hypocrisy. That idea that we claim to have fellowship with the God who is light and yet inwardly are darkened. And that mismatch is hypocrisy. Now, some of us might start to squirm in our seat. Just hold me out here a little bit. Uh, But I do want to say that as, as I look at Jesus and who is the truth, how he encounters these claims, I want to say his harshest criticism in the gospel is reserved for not the sinners, but the religious leaders, the Pharisees, those who claim to have fellowship, who think well of themselves, and yet are not so inside. He says this uh, in Matthew 18, against religious leaders, woe to you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs, appearing beautiful on the outside, but inside are dead. You appear righteous before men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And surely at the root of hypocrisy is a, is a complete unawares, if not maliciously unaware, of what's happening inside. An inability to acknowledge, to confess what the reality is inside. And that's where John goes next. If we claim to be without sin... That is, that if we think that we've mastered ourselves in some kind of self-improvement version, uh, and now are no longer uh, kind of impacted by sin, he says, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, we'll go on to talk about how confession is actually the antidote to that, but it's worth noting about this claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves again, and the truth is not in us. And I think of um, maybe how Jesus uh, is kind of called into a scene where a prostitute or an adulteress uh, has been lined up against a wall ready to be stoned because that was the, that was the consequence, of, you know, according to the law in that day, as, as horrendous as that sounds. And, and, and as Jesus enters that crowd, that, that moment, that scene, no doubt they were looking in at him to see, to see what Jesus will say. Here is a man of truth and of justice. What will he say? But what is incredible is that he doesn't simply say, or let's get on with it, far from it. He says, the person who has not sinned can throw the first stone. We are not able to escape sin and its implications. And we need to be aware of that, lest we deceive ourselves. Thirdly, if we claimed we have not sinned, I mean, that's quite a claim, if we've claimed to have not sinned, we make out God to be a liar. Again, I think, and I shared this a little while ago, I think of that, that simple parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where Jesus imagines the Pharisee in the temple praying to God, and he prays the most ridiculous prayer. He says, thank you, God, I am not like that tax collector and other evildoers, and I tithe everything I give. Amen. I mean, in that prayer, he's basically saying, I don't need you, God. I'm, I'm, sin's not an issue for me at all, never really has been. 
And when you say that, you accuse God of being a liar because He has given us His Word, and His Word is Jesus, and He is the truth. And when God gave us His Word, Jesus died for us. And if we say we don't need that, then we make God out to be a liar. And accordingly, self-delude ourselves. Now, sin here is more than just doing bad things. We see kind of sin used with unrighteousness, lawlessness, but it's not just kind of like a, you know, God of Santa Claus looking at kind of the naughty and nice list and who's done the unrighteous things. And, you know, that's just the, the kind of the tip of the iceberg. What is it? The root of sin is living outside the truth, rejecting the one who is truth. The heart of sin is rejecting God's Word, Jesus. And when we put it like that, how could we have fellowship with the God who is light? So what are we to do? Well, John, in his very pastoral letter, outlines three gospel counterclaims to our deluded claims. Firstly, but if we walk in the light, there's that claim there, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So there we go, but let's walk in the light instead. Now, that sounds a little bit religious, right? In the sense of kind of like, okay, if you're walking in darkness, just, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get on with being a better person and live in the light. And there is kind of a truth that in the sense that you are being called to live in righteousness, to live out light, especially if you're claiming to have fellowship with the God who is light. Therefore, do righteousness. Follow God. Please Him. But we know that there's more to that because our hearts are so wayward and the Scriptures are so clear about that. And so that's, we get to the deeper heart issue in that second counterclaim, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from unrighteousness. And I want to say here that a right confession of Christ cannot help but lead to a right confession of self. That is, when you see Jesus as He is, as the, as the Word of God, as the truth, as light, life and love, when you see Him in His perfection, You cannot help but see the darkness in your heart. He lights it up. He's calling us in that moment to confess our darkness. Because He can see it anyway, He's calling us in the intimacy of actually confessing that which is in our heart, which doesn't please Him. To talk about it in relationship. And and the way we can do that is because of grace. There's a safety in this that that because we are loved and He will forgive us, we don't grovel before Him fearfully hoping that He he might look upon us fondly. We do this openly because we know He is merciful. And thirdly, and the real power of all of this, is but if anybody does sin, know that We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. There is Jesus daily advocating for us before the Father. He he knows me and He speaks to the Father on my behalf. He now calls me righteous because of what? 
because of the most important sentence here, kind of the bedrock, the doctrinal bedrock, because Jesus is our atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, that's atonement is a, is a very rich theological word. It's really not a word that we use in English. It's almost a made-up word to try and make sense of what's happening here. It's kind of a, a joining of, of, of at-one-ment, to, to join two things together which ought not to be joined in a way. That is the God who is light and us who are in darkness. How does that mix? How do we make at-one those two things? In Jesus' death for us. See, Jesus didn't just live to be kind of a moral example, to kind of like, oh, that's what I should be like. That's the authentic self. I'll follow that. No, it's so much more than that. He substituted for us so that where we ought to die under the judgment of God, He died for us. And the Greek behind this goes even further. A word that we don't use a lot, propitiation. I mean, use that in a sentence, right? Uh, propitiation means to turn God's wrath away. And this is where it gets a bit real. At Alpha this week, we're talking about some, some quite similar things, actually, and there was a guy who came along, and, and he was kind of really down with, like, sort of talking about spirituality, and I find that so true of Newtown. Uh, and, uh, and, and we're talking, and he loved that Jesus kind of had some things to say about sort of spirituality, and he's kind of on board with that. But as soon as we start talking about Jesus being a historical person, and that he didn't just have things to say, but the claims he made had an impact in, in us and, and the world, and it turns everything upside down. And even when we got to judgment, he started to get really uh, sort of uneasy. He said, you don't believe in judgment, do you? Like, haven't we grown up past those things? Let's just keep it all spiritual and nice. And I said to him, don't you want to believe in judgment? I mean, surely after this year, we want all of the sadnesses, all of the injustices, all of the brokenness and the mess rectified? Don't we want a God who cares enough to actually speak into that and fix that? He's like, yeah. I said, but the, the problem is, is that the Scriptures are very clear that that cuts right through us as well, through our very hearts, because we are part of the problem. But God has decided in His love and His mercy to send Jesus Christ the light, life, and love of the world, into the world, that He might die instead of us, that God's wrath might be turned away, and that we might have fellowship and intimacy and be made one with the God who is light, that we might now walk in light also. See, grace is the very beginning and the constancy of the Christian life. We're not kind of trying to get better so that then God might be happy with us. We recognize from the very beginning in the Christian faith that we're never going to be able to do that. And it starts with grace. And it starts with the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, who when we confess our sins, forgives us. Friends, this is a game changer, not just for our life, but for our whole view of life that we live. See, God has invested Christ, the righteous one, in us that we might be transformed. That we might have fellowship with Him and now have a profoundly new fellowship with others. Let me say a couple of things here pastorally. It, it, it changes that this, this gospel truth, this counterclaim against every claim that we bring of ourselves. 
It changes the way we look at ourselves. So we are no longer casual about living in darkness because Christ has invested Himself in us that we would not do that, but also we are called now to live in light. There is a more glorious, a truer version, a more authentic version to be lived out of ourselves. But secondly, we don't carry the guilt and weight of that sin anymore because we have been forgiven. So Romans 8.1 says, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God's wrath has been turned away. And so between not being casual about our sin and not being overly burdened by them because of guilt, we're actually able to replace our shame and our guilt with sorrow, a godly sorrow, and a hope. And that actually frees us up to be, to be curious about ourselves. No longer sort of defensive about the claims we make about ourselves, but we kind of be curious. It's like, God, I know what I did yesterday didn't please you. I want to talk to you about that. I'm sorry for that. I don't even know why I did it. Help me understand what's going on in my heart, that I might live out all that you've called me to be, that I might know Jesus more, that I might trust him more. Help me to turn away from that. I mean, we're doing that in the intimacy of a father and son, father and daughter relationship, not between an angry God that we're trying to grovel before to appease. John is calling us to experience the intimacy of fellowship with the God who is light, life, and love. It also enables us to be compassionate. So that as we come to this thing called church, and as we think about fellowship, we acknowledge that we are bound together in the fact that we recognize that we are sinners saved by grace. This is not some kind of, I don't know, Bible interest society. This is not kind of a league of the nice, the shiny, the happy, got it all together. This is a messy, in development, object of God's love and mercy. And so we should expect our fellowship to be messy at times. And yet we are hopeful that God is transforming each of us and even using each other to do that. And that's kind of where John actually lands as we kind of flow the logic through. The power of Christ's atoning sacrifice and our confession actually enables us to have a profoundly new fellowship with, not just with God, but with one another. And I don't know anyone who puts this better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian during Nazi Germany, wrestling with how Christ's atonement radically transforms the church. The church he saw had been kind of, you know, had run off with the political powers of the day, and he was profoundly unhappy with that. And he wanted to look at Christ and see what, who the kind of church that Christ builds. He writes this in his book, Life Together. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. See, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. And we know what that's like, right? When we know we've stuffed up, we want to go back in the darkness. We want to carve out that part of our life and hide it away. Sin wants to remain unknown, he says. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. We're back to the, to the inauthentic self, 
We're back to the false claims we make of ourselves to try and make ourselves feel better. He goes on, the expressed, acknowledged sin, the sin that we've brought before the Father and even before others, has lost all its power. It has been revealed and judged as sin, and it can no longer tear the fellowship asunder. He is no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin in confession and handed it over to God. It has been taken away from him. I love this bit. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now we stand in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what you've been brought into. You are fully known and fully loved only in Jesus Christ. Every other way will prove futile. Every other claim you want to make of yourself will be inauthentic. You are fully known and fully loved in Christ. And the only way that you might have fellowship with the God who is light and true fellowship with other human beings is by the power of Christ's atoning sacrifice. And we wield that into our lives through the confession of our sins as we enjoy the transforming intimacy of Christ in us. That is good news, friends. The Bible is very real about our human condition, who we are, but it provides the most powerful counterclaim. Christ himself in us. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.